there's one thing, one aspect of these movies that I want to talk about, and I don't think we'll get to it necessarily with, within the show, is that do you think when someone becomes a thing that that person is aware of it? No. You don't believe so? No, because it seems like some of the people that got taken over didn't realize that they were the thing until later. I've always believed that as well. Like, it's such a perfect imitation. The brain of that person is still going to be the brain of that person mm -hmm. until it's those kinds of cells are no longer needed. You don't necessarily get to look into it too much into the film. Now, you, you do in this, I think, um, obviously, in the couch scene, you, you do get to see a little bit of it. You notice uh, Palmer when he starts to turn. His face is just completely blank, and then eventually, like, his eyes start spitting out. So, like, all that brain tissue is just going to something else. So, whatever that person was just went away. Yeah. That, that's the way I've always sort of looked at it. But I always think it's an interesting thing is I, I think that's the only way you can be a perfect imitation is if you are, you truly believe you are the person. Yeah. I, I think that that's how it works. Now, I'm not saying that the, the thing can't control in some other way and, like, influence your thinking, obviously. I mean, that, that's what it's supposed to do. You know, I think we, we'll talk about it later in the movie, but... There, there's scenes where it does, and obviously the dog, I think, is another good example of that. And the, the other movie, well, the, the, the remake sort of doesn't help with that, I don't, I don't think, though, right? You mean the prequel? The prequel, pardon me. Yeah. Let's just refer to it as a prequel, because it's also the thing. Yeah. This, yeah this, we'll make it confusing some of the reason we separated yeah. for this week, so we, we don't have that general problem. So, But I, I will say that that movie is a, a little bit, has another movie, that is another scene that adds to the clarity of that. When Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character is attacked, mm -hmm. the person who was the thing, like her head is just there and she just has a general blank expression on her face. So that's another thing that made me think that, that like she really thought she was the person until that moment that everything started to turn. Yeah, the, 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 the no cell mutated. Dead. Yeah. An empty husk of a, of a head. Basically. Yeah. At least that's the way I, I look at it. Now, that movie does some other things wrong in the end when they show that guy's face and he's like clearly scowling. So, but that was, we'll, we'll talk about why that was the way it was later, but that was the main thing I wanted to discuss is, is that. And cause I think that's the number one thing that I've always thought about when I'm done watching the thing is like, when you spawn back in, like how aware are you of it? And I think that's the best way to say, like I said, make the, the perfect copies. You, they would have, they would have to not know. Mm -hmm. So at least it's always been very interesting to me. Anything else to add? <laughs> No, no, you, you made some great points, and I, I'm just, what can I say? <laughs> you were just, like, ultra quiet in that moment. No, I... I, 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 like, uh, I like had to break the tension. <laughs> I was listening to what you were saying and everything you were saying I agree with. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we're on the same page. I very much Yeah. Agree. Well, we both really love this movie, I think, for very, very similar reasons. Mm -hmm. Hello, 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 everybody. <laughs> I'm Pedro. And I'm Meredith. And my wife cannot read my lips. <laughs> no, I can't. This is one thing that I have learned while doing the show, is that my wife cannot read my lips at all in any way, shape, or form. Because there's so many times, like, right while we're recording or right when I'm playing a clip, I will mouth something out. And she'll just look at me like, what are you saying? And I'm like, I'm like talk first. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes it's like that. But this is how this show, Gritty Reboot, works. Mm-hmm. <sighs> just throw it up in the air and hope it lands. Pretty much. That's, that's all we're doing here. We're not necessarily movie experts. We're just people that like to talk about movies. And we love movie reboots. Yeah. It's the general concept of them. And today's a real interesting one because we're talking about a reboot that I love. I mean, literally one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, it's mine too. So 
today is, I, I guess, with no reason to beat around the bush towards the topic. Today we are covering 1982 John Carpenter's The Thing. Woo! So as always, uh, I, I want to talk to you about what your first memory of this movie was. With you. Really? Yeah, you're the first person to show me this movie. I was unaware that I was the first person to show you the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Th- this was, um, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I'm, I'm glad I showed it to you then. Yeah, high school. It's what sealed the deal, apparently. Uh, <laughs> I was introduced to this movie by my dad. And this is one of those movies he like, like he vouched for. It's like, oh no, no, this, this is a good one. Like you know, and it, once again, I was really young, way, way too young to be watching a movie like this. Mm-hmm. But like violence like that just wasn't something that really parents thought about in the '80s. You know, I, I want to reiterate again, like Freddy Krueger was a like a, a toy marketed to kids, right? Yeah, you, you could buy a Freddy Krueger mask and a glove in a, in a in a Toys R Us or KB toy store, right? Our daughter was in love with Freddy. Jason. Jason. Yeah. Don't don't. I did that again. Don't embarrass me. Oh my me. god! Podcast people. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> what was I saying? Where am I? Is this a show? Yeah, we're this doing is, a show. We're doing a show. So my dad introduced <laughs> introduced this movie to me. Saw it way too young, and I, I loved it. I did. I, I've loved this movie from the very first time I saw it. You know, the thing gave me nightmares, and I think I've. I've always been distrustful of people, maybe because of John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> that maybe, just maybe, they always have ulterior motives, and they're not really human. No, this movie's just stuck with me for a long time. I had it on VHS. I had the original DVD. I had, you know, actually, what we, what we watched, uh, our copy was... The HD DVD that I bought. Now, I, I do not have a functioning HD DVD player, everybody, but I did invest in the technology as it died. I was able to get like um, the Xbox 360 add on HD DVD player and like 18 movies for $22. So I got those. And in that pile is like The Searchers, 300 other movies I really love, and this one. So I was able to use that DVD player, I mean, HD DVD player, to rip all those movies into my collection. So that's how they exist from now on. But the actual discs are in a Probably got thrown away a long Did time Did you ago. just admit to a crime? What crime? Isn't that piracy? To rip my own movies? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, I rip my own movies. Yeah, I bought them legally. Mm. I bought them legally at a fire sale. Mm, okay. Yeah. No, you. Make sure. Yeah, you. You know the trouble I go through. I'm gonna to, turn you in to backup movies. She's seen me do it. Like have multiple computers running so I can have. I ain't seen shit. <laughs> wow! Immediately, <laughs> you're looking to turn state's evidence on me. Help me! <laughs> All right. So, as always, we got to go with the proper cast list. We got right into the nostalgia first, but we have Thomas Waits as Windows, David Moffat as Gary, John Polis as Fuchs or Fux as uh, I used to think as a kid, Richard Mauser as Clark, Richard Maloney as uh, George Bennings, Charles Halon as Norris, Richard Dysart as Doctor Copper. Keith David is Childs, and that's not David Keith. I repeat, that is Keith David. David Clennon is Palmer. T.K. Carter is Knowles. A. Wilford Brimley as Blair. And Kurt Russell as R.J. fucking McCready. Yeah, no kidding. 
So uh, one other name, as we talk about uh, cast and crew here, I want to talk about Dean Cundey for a minute. Uh, Dean Cundey lit this movie and is maybe like the greatest cinematographer to ever live. And I only mention that because this movie is in Antarctica with a lot of snow and inside very tight corridors, very tight corridors. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Like it really is a gorgeous looking film about disgusting things. Yeah. And paranoia. And that, that is all the, the, really due to the power of, of how well John Carpenter and Dean Cundey worked with each other. Uh, like I said, Dean Cundey made a, a, he lit a lot of great films. And th- this is one of them right there, even though this movie, like I said, d- didn't do the best at the box office. Like this really is one of the high points of his career. And it, it should be mentioned, like this is almost a movie where every frame is like a painting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a gorgeous movie. It's if, very engaging. If, if you love the look of like 80 Cinemascope uh, movies, this is one to definitely check out if, you, if you've never seen the thing. Yeah, it's like you can see every ounce of gore of this movie. Yeah, and it's not just that. Like, what, you understand the layout of this facility. The geography. Perfectly, yeah. yeah. You, you Like when Kurt Russell's running through it, you know where he is. Like, you know what's happening. Like, you know where people are going. In that respect, like those things are very difficult to achieve a lot of the times. And, and we'll talk about it with, with the prequel. I'm going to be straight, the prequel. And it's not a remake, it's a prequel. Because like th- that's something that's real important when you're doing a movie about tension and where the hell people are at. Like you need to know where that is. So mm-hmm. it means something. So I, I think that that's a, another great, great element of it. So, All right. Are you ready to kick this off? Let's start it off. All right. We start off with a spaceship. That's uh, going into Earth's orbit, and then we leave from that scene. Yeah, after that, we get the, the title card. Okay. And I did want to mention about the title card. It's an interesting effect. Uh, did you know how they did that? No, I don't. I, I haven't it's, it's a clue. It's a garbage bag that they just took like a little like a little soldering iron, and they just kind of drew out the thing, and they just pull the garbage bag off, and it creates that really creepy-looking effect. That's cool. So it's what they did in this version. I think they used a different kind of plastic in the original film. The thing from another world, but yeah, that's how they did it. Just old school 80s ingenuity. Nice. Yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. But it's, this movie is full of just practical impressiveness. Yeah, that's very true. We get the same title card in all three movies, which we just discussed. Mm-hmm. Helicopter is chasing a dog trying to shoot at it. And we have some great, beautiful scenes of the Antarctic, all the snow. Yeah, you see how vast this, the land is. Yeah, exactly. Is. Like you get the geography. A wasteland and everything yeah. like that. It's just ice. There's nothing there until the dog runs close enough to come to the American camp. We get our first shot of my favorite guy ever, Kurt fucking Russell. <laughs> <laughs> we get introduced to him. I think it's a pretty cool cool way to do it, in all honesty. I, I, I like the way. I mean, it really is iconic when you, when you get right down to it. Everything from his attire and everything like that. Yeah. And I love him arguing with the chess machine a little bit too. <laughs> That's one. You know who goes to the chess machine, by the way? Mm-mm. It's Adrian Barbeau, the director's wife. Oh, okay. Yeah, she was in The Fog and Swamp Thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, the fact that I have for you. I'm a sore loser too, so I understand it. I, I, I would also pour uh, Jim Bean on, onto my computer if it cheated to beat me. <laughs> was that wrong? Or put beans in it, like we saw on that one internet. Yeah, thing. beans. All right. So we have the conversation with the helicopter. Yeah, they, the, the dog. He cannot hit this dog, and he looks like a crazy person to everybody in the American camp because mm-hmm. he's circling them. He's coming down. He's shooting right at the he dog. Tries to blow up the dog. Yeah, yeah. He drops a thermite charge, which blows up the helicopter and this pilot. So he's the only one left. He shouts in Norwegian, but nobody over there speaks Norwegian. By the way, a fun fact: if you do happen to speak that language, he actually gives away the entire film. Yeah, that's what you said when yeah, you were yeah, watching it. Yeah, because I, I, years ago on, on the commentary track, John Carpenter mentioned that when the, it got screened over there that they didn't realize that. 
So he just says, like, there's an alien in the dog. It's a monster. Don't touch it. It'll infect all of you and copy you. Like, he literally just says. Well, oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> so that audience so was completely. you saw in the theaters, you were fucked. Yeah, they were completely ruined if you, if you spoke that language. And it's something he just didn't even consider at the time. It just made sense narratively that that's what he would say. He would try to get out the most effective use of his information possible in the shortest Quickly. amount of time. Yeah. You have to say something unbelievable. But yeah, so, and then that's what insights here. He tries to keep shooting them and he's eventually taken down by uh, Gary, right? Mm, I didn't catch his name. Yeah. Gary, the, the station commander. Okay. Yeah. yeah the that's older right. Guy. Yeah, right. He, the he captain. Gets, he gets to finally use his pop gun as they say later on. Yeah. He takes the shot and he puts him down after, I, I think, he, I forget who he wounds. Um, is it, um, oh, Bennings. He wounds Bennings. He, he clips his leg a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but that's all that happens. He's put down. He's dead. And obviously, this gets everybody incredibly curious about what the fuck happened in the Norwegian camp. Yeah. They let the dog roam around camp. So I want to talk about one thing that I never get to talk about, and that's dog actors. Uh, <laughs> working a, a little bit in production, like, you know, the cliche is true. You don't want to work with kids or animals. They slow things down. And John Carpenter loved this dog. Well, I think his name was Jed. And he's uncredited in the film, by the way. He apparently was like the one take wonder dog. And as you watch like the movie, like the dog has a great sense of like menace, right? Mm -hmm. Like you look at that dog and you feel like its wheels are turning, like the way it moves and everything like that. Yeah. Like it moves in, in a hallway. It goes from one door, looks in it and then goes to another door, goes through the door. I mean, he stops. Yeah. Like contemplating. Yeah. It's you never doubt for a second. Like that's not a dog. Yeah. Like it, you know it instantly, like that is not a dog. That's the thing. And it's very cool because that's just an animal actor doing that. Something Carpenter was really worried about. He's like, the dog just nailed it. You know, he just got it. And I, I just wanted to mention it. He really helps sell this thing early on and helps add to this level of paranoia. Because that's a great scene when he goes through the hallway. It really is. And you see the shadow and he goes at it. And we, we can't really recognize the shadow. It's not till later on, or at least as I, I would say, it's, it obviously, it's got to be Palmer. Yeah. That he attacks and everything. Like, I think Palmer's patient zero. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Like you said, we get the dog looking mischievous. It slinks his way through the hallway. Creedy takes a small crew, including the dog, to the Norwegian camp. And they get there and find the place is a total wreck. Yeah. The, Burnt the, out husk. They, they find, like, what you would, if you've seen the movie, it makes sense. Like, what, what would happen there once the thing got around? Obviously, we get a movie to explain that later on. But it does look like something really horrible happened. And there's some really, you know, kind of spooky shit there. The suicide. Yeah, uh, you have burned. a guy who killed himself cutting both wrist and his own neck. Yeah. He, like he almost severed his own neck. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to die as quick as he could before it got to him. Yeah. And that, like that lets you know something truly, truly horrible was happening. Yeah. You know, he never wanted to lose his humanity. And I, I think that's a real interesting element of that death that gets overlooked. And something that's really horrifying if you really think about it. And of course, then they move through and they find the block of ice with something clawed its way out of or exploded out yeah. its way out as we later find out. They find the f- pile of man creature basically with mm-hmm. kerosene all around it. Yeah. So that's, it's like, what is that? It's exactly. a massive tissue and blood and gore. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The samples brought back for them to figure out what the hell this thing is or what it was trying to be. Well, they take the... The blob of mass of human whatever. Yeah. And they take it back to camp, and the dog watches him come back to camp. Yeah, he's watching, like, he's standing on a table looking out the window, and he sees, he's like, okay, the humans know. 
that there's something else out there. Mm-hmm. So they're, he's like, I need to be careful. They're going to start being suspicious. They notice that the mass has a normal set of organs. Yeah, and that's the thing about it. Like, what, whatever it was, was human or wanted to be. Yeah. They're dissecting it, and it's pretty gross. A lot of gross sound. A lot of, yeah. That kind of stuff. A lot of good sound work in this movie. Also, effortless characterization. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, th- this movie's not necessarily about who these people are, but it's giving you enough about these people in these little moments yeah. that we know who they are and a little bit of what they're about. Yes, it does dip into some cliche, but the movie is not about who everyone is. The movie's about what paranoia does to people. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's about the darkness in us when we're scared. You know, when, when like I said, the, the biggest aspect of this movie is that, like, all these tough guys, I mean, they're prey. You know, and, and this movie and Predator do that very well, where they sort of turn, like, a bunch of tough guys all into, into Final Girls, basically, kind of. Like, they're, they're all in this situation where they have to fight for their lives against something that they can't take on. In you know, their strength doesn't mean anything anymore. And I think that's a, an interesting element of the movie. So. so they're doing that autopsy. Yeah, they finish that autopsy, and then we get a scene where Clark, I believe it is, uh-huh. who's the dog man. Yeah. I haven't written his dog man in my notes. Dog man. Dog man. <laughs> he takes the, uh, the strange dog back to the kennel. Yeah, yeah, because the dog has literally just been walking around aimlessly the camp all, all day. Yeah. Been able to do anything it wants, so that adds another layer to it. The dog could have done anything. And it's been with Clark. Yeah. Alone. Yeah, so he, he takes it back over there, and he, and he locks it in the kennel. And almost immediately, the, the dog is uneasy, and it's more great acting again. Like, the dog is very cautious yeah. entering, because the dog is somewhat aware, okay, the humans can't smell or, or sense that I'm different. But these things, I don't know if I can fool them just as easily. And the thing can't. The dogs catch on pretty quickly that it's not another dog. Yeah. You know, they have a much stronger sense of probably smell. Probably smell some yeah. sort. Yeah, it probably just doesn't smell quite right. And so almost immediately after Clark leaves, or the dog man, if you will. <laughs> and Clark loves the dog. Yeah, he uh, does. Like I said, we, we don't get a ton of character moments. We just get quick visual things in this movie. And we always see that he loves these dogs. They're more important to him than anybody else in the damn mission or in the, in the facility. Small bits of characterization. Yeah, yeah, just like that. So when he heads back, he gets out of there, then everything really starts to, to turn into this uh, glorious, uh, gory mess, right? Yeah, the, the thing has these tentacles and it starts wrapping its, the tentacles around the dogs and squirting them with this goo. Yeah. And it's making them turn. Yeah, and this and catches being absorbed. Yeah, this catches the attention of everybody. I think Clark's the one to head back there and just kind of call out because he doesn't I mean, he doesn't know what to make of what's going on. This is pure insanity. Yeah. A couple of dogs escaped. Yeah. We we do know that cuz Dogman goes back to the the kennel and sees this whole craziness and opens the door and and uh, Yeah, a couple of the dogs like just knock him yeah. over before he's able to look in there and see like what the thing is starting to transform. A little bit of the dog is left, but other parts of whatever the thing had met before are, are poking out at this moment in time. The whole time I'm like, don't open that door. Yeah, shut the door. Don't shut, open the door. Shut the door. Just leave them. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Bennings, go get Child. What is this? What's, the kind of, what's going on? What's the kind of hey, Palmer, what is it? I don't know. Child. Mac wants the flamethrower. Mac wants the what? That's what he said. Now move. Damn it. 
Great sound work for the dogs. Mm -hmm. That fear in their in the bark. stuff of nightmares yeah true massive flesh and that sound that awful fucking sound that's a pig or something yeah, yeah. it's slowly absorbing there's a half absorbed dog before McCready starts shooting dog death mm-hmm Clark freaks out Stretching up, alien hands coming up to the ceiling, pulling it up. Yeah, it comes a huge mass. Yeah. And the thing is, like, the guys are just, like, watching it. Because I get it. Like, what the fuck? you just in pure shock. Yeah. Even Child, the tough guy, is just staring at it. It's got to come at him before he fires. He lights that thing up. And, and this is when we learned that fire is really the only thing that can be done against it. McCready was able to figure out real quickly, get the get the flamethrower. That's the only thing we know that can slow whatever this thing is down. It kind of hibernates in cold, extreme cold, yeah. and, it, and it just dies in extreme heat. Exactly. The cells die. Yeah. But they also can regenerate, so it's kind of a really tough creature to kill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that's the thing about it. Like, you, you have to destroy every single cell before it's completely dead. Yeah. And that's kind of tough to do. With, with what, you can't certainly do it with a pistol. Well, the doc starts dissecting the dog creature. Mm -hmm. uh, they also review the footage of the Norwegians and what they were doing in the snow. And you see the guys lining up, like in the prequel. Yeah, yeah. I, I do like that they the have scale. that VHS footage. Yeah. You can see the ship and everything like that and what they were, what they were doing. They take a chopper to the side of the footage. And they spot the spaceship. Yeah. And this is a little bit of a contradiction because you don't, you don't really see a lot of this in the, in the prequel. But I guess we'll get into that more when we do that episode next week. But uh, I just wanted to mention, like, it, it's a little bit different because the ship is, like, portrayed as, like, really far down there. Yeah. And you can, you can like, see it on the, in, you know, on the surface. It's kind of whatever. But they do find that. And, of course, they find the hole where they dug out the actual creature. Yeah. Whew. So, yeah, we, we're adding a little bit of lore onto it. It's 100% some sort of alien creature, so they know that. I mean, they're not 100% shocked, but, you know, they, they know, obviously, something awful has happened now, and they're in big trouble. Yeah, and they can't, they obviously can't let it leave, either. Mm -hmm. They have to kill it. Yeah. At least McCready comes to that realization pretty early in the movie. Yeah, yeah, that this isn't something that can work. And, and we see Wilford Brimley's character, Blair, come to this as well, after he does the, the autopsy, right? Yeah. You know, he, he's one of the first kind of people to really figure out something is, this is very, very wrong. Something's awful here. Yeah, we get that great scene where the doctor's um, sitting at the, Blair is sitting at the, the computer and he's getting all the diagnostics on yeah, like projections of 
just doom and gloom. Yeah, he's watching this computer run like the lamest looking simulation of it. I'm sure that was like cutting edge in like 1982. One of the screens said 75% chance team members are infected. Yeah, and immediately like the music hits. And this is more Cone, by the way. I didn't know when she, before we get back to the scene. This is uh, the gentleman who did The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. This is not a John Carpenter score, even though it sounds just like it a John does. Carpenter score. But he did that more as, I guess, an in tribute, and, and he felt that fit the, the movie. I, I know that's not necessarily what Carpenter wanted, but he wasn't going to you know, tell the master he was wrong. There's a few moments where it doesn't sound like a Carpenter score, but it, it very much does sound like a Carpenter movie. So mm-hmm. that is a little bit weird that he didn't do it, and it's, it's just a little factoid towards this flick. But the music is still fantastic. Yeah. It really is. It, it's one of the, the better scores in, in, in a Carpenter flick. But yeah, we hear that score pop up, you know, increase the tension when you see 75% chance. And, you know, that's when we know things are in shit shape for everybody. Yeah, in real shit shape. Yeah. Guy tells uh, McCready that the remains are still alive. So we get the whole cell regeneration scene. Yeah. Yeah, that they get, they understand what's going on there. And this is where Blair starts acting strange. Yeah. To everybody in the camp. Yeah, I like when he goes to meet with Clark. Yeah. I think that's that's a great scene about paranoia. Yeah, when when he's talking to him about some of the dogs. Mm-hmm. And like he's just staring. They're the two characters looking right in each other's eyes. And that's something to note in the movie. There's not a lot of characters, not a lot of scenes where you see two eyes back to back to back like that. You know, Carpenter hides a lot of characters' faces and eyes a lot of times in this movie. And, you know, when they're talking about the dogs and like when Blair's putting things together and talking to Clark about the time he spent with him. Like that, that's a scene that I liked a little bit earlier on that we kind of skipped over. And I just wanted to mention it because it's a small little thing, but it just begins the sense of paranoia of who can you trust? Yeah. And that, that it's, it's one of those scenes that sets it in motion for me. And I wanted to go back and bring it up, but continue on. Bennett starts becoming the thing. Yeah. There's a very cool scene. You have uh, him and windows. They're in the room with the creatures and they're putting some things away. They're making sure the creatures are, you know, set aside and as Windows leaves, he has to back to the creature. It starts to slowly move behind him, and he never sees it. And Windows leaves the room. And he comes back in a few minutes later, and he finds Benny's just covered in tentacles. Yeah. He runs out to uh, McCready and uh, Fuchs, who are in the Jeep, talking about, like, how shit <laughs> Blair Everything thinks that they, Yeah. Yeah, because Fuchs got Blair's notes, and he's just like, listen, Blair thinks that the world's going to end. We got to do something, man. And McCready, to his credit, is like, I just... Just want to drink my whiskey like, and I get just, through the winter. He's like, I just want to get drunk. I'm gonna go up to my cabin, jerk off, and go to bed. I don't give a shit, man. Like he just could give a fuck, <laughs> which I enjoy. I, I enjoy. It's not really until this moment that McCready snaps right into it. And he's like the leader. Yeah, he's the someone's got to take charge, and he gets it very quickly. Windows gets their attention. They get out of there and they see a Benning's running down the snow. And they get over to him and his hands aren't done forming yet. They're just this mass of tentacles and almost human hand. They didn't quite form. And it really is impressive. You know, just the level of fright I've always had of this scene. It always sends, as a kid, it sent chills down my spine. It does not now. You know, he looks right into the camera and he lets out that horrible sound as McCready knocks over the barrel and burns him alive. Yeah. I, like I said, that, that's the stuff of nightmares for me. Yeah, I mean, it's all great stuff. Mm-hmm. What would be your favorite scene in this movie? Hmm, that is a good question. I, I think for me, it would definitely be the blood test scene. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, I think it's the blood test scene. Yeah. But I, I think this is, movies are about stacking your action. And Howard Hawks used to say a movie is three good scenes and no bad ones. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think in a movie, you want to stack 
and build, stack and build. And this is a movie that does that really, really well through three acts. And you're just using everything to increase this tension to make things worse and harder and more difficult on your heroes and your protagonists. And this is another scene that takes things up another notch. Like it's a, a great, like you're just moving straight up this incline of mm-hmm. tension and drama and horror. And like I said, it's, it's another sequence that adds to it. And I think that's something that's very important, you know? So sometimes movies don't peak at the right time. And I think the thing really does, but another fantastic sequence here and more great music by Morcone. So. Hell yeah. Well, we actually see, we see, we see a scene, saw, we see a shot. There we go. <laughs> Of uh, Blair coming from the helicopter. Yeah, after all this is said and done, McCready goes to check that bitch. And yeah. what, what, what's he find? It's making old classic, like shorting out noises and things like yeah, that. Yeah, he like rips the whole like console out. Yeah, yeah. And he hears some commotion inside and he starts running in there. Smashed up some of the chopper pretty good. Nobody Child, go see if he got to the tractor. Nobody gets in and out of here. Nobody. You guys think I'm crazy? When I think of Wilford Brimley, I don't think of violent. But he's really good in this scene. Yeah, he's crazy. Most of the chopper and the tractor. And he's killed the rest of the dogs. There's a look on Clark's face of pure heartbreak when he hears that. Yeah. And Clark immediately runs away from the action right to the dogs. Go around to the map room door. I think that's characterization. Yep. Yeah. Get a table from the lab. You see how clever McCready is? That's why he's the leader. I love that. That's it right there. Like, he's crazy, but perfectly sane. Oh, yeah. He knows what's up. Yeah. That's what happens to a sane person when he realizes what kind of shit that he's in in the situation, right? Just shoots a child. He's like, you don't want to kill me, right? Boom, shit! (laughs) And then later on, Childs has a gun pointed at him and backs down because he's like, nah, I've been shot at once today. I'm okay. Yeah. McCready's able to go in there and subdue him. Poor Punches Windows. Him a couple times. Yeah, poor Windows gets his ass kicked just trying to do his job. I feel so bad for Windows in this movie, man. He saw some terrible shit and he's actually just trying to be a good dude. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes our movies shit on nice people. And he has one of the worst deaths. Yeah, yeah, it really does. But no, that's one of the things I want to talk about in the scene is like a lot of people talk about when is someone the thing, when aren't they the thing? And I, I, that is interesting talk. Like I said, I. I He's obviously not the thing right here because that's not, not what it wants. It would want communication in the outside world. He's perfectly sane and he realizes what he has to do. He's like, the dogs have to be killed. No one can ever leave here. I have to destroy the radio and I have to blow up the facility. Yeah. Like he, like he understands, like if this gets out of this into a civilized area, the world is over. It's going to, it's going to be everything. So I mean, I, I really love his actions. I do, you know, and they have to subdue him and they end up throwing him in the in the cabin outside all by himself. Yeah. And then this is when they 
kind of think they need to divulge a test of some sort. Yeah. But I do want to mention one thing before we leave that. When we leave the scene, adds to the paranoia. Watch Clark always increasing that level of paranoia and tension. That's one of my favorite little aspects of the movie. And who is McCready the most distrustful of? Clark. Yeah. Just because the doctor said that. Yeah. Because I think McCready thinks that Blair is perfectly sane. I, I think, think that so. I think that's what scares McCready. I think that's why he's kind of creeped out during that whole thing. Because he knows that Blair is not, not some bullshitter. Like, you know, he's a serious kind of guy. So I think that's something that, that another interesting aspect. of. When do you think Blair becomes the thing? When he's out there. The next time he'll come out there and he'll talk to me, he's like, I'm much better now. I want to come in. That time? He's the thing. A hundred percent. I agree. The hundred percent. He's the thing. I don't remember in the commentary track if they said anything about that back in the day. Before we move on to the blood test, I did want to say, I've, uh, on the DVD, they had the commentary track and it's just John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. And it is so cool because they are just talking about the movie, like two old friends. And very rarely does it have that kind of vibe. Like at one point, like (laughs) Kurt Russell talks about uh, something his son just did, who ended up playing in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. He was Captain America in that. (laughs) Yeah, that's who he's talking about. But yeah, he mentioned something offhand that his son did. Carpenter's like, oh, that's great. And I was like, wow, that was a nice little moment of friendship between those two guys. Like they just had like, oh, hey, did I tell you this? Like you could hear their closeness and their bond. And Kurt Russell has such an affection for the movie. I mean, such an affection for it. He really loves this. And you could hear in that commentary track. It's so cool. It, it very much is. I, I mean, I'd, it's something I would recommend if you, I don't know if it's on the current Blu-ray or the current 4K version now, but if you can seek it out and if you're a, a real big fan of those two and the movies they made together, it's a nice little fun companion piece to really check out. I recommend it. Cool. Yeah. I do love deleted scenes and yeah, that, extras. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I commentary. think commentary tracks are a bit of a lost art because of, of what's happened with media and everything like that, but they could lead to some very, very nice results. Well, they discover some sabotage all the blood. Yeah. Yeah. And this does lead to, to quite a bit of tension because now we have a couple extra people who can be put to blame here. Right. Yeah. We have obviously Gary has the key. So <laughs> that's a pretty big deal. And then of course, Dr. Cooper, Dr. Copper, I'm just saying Cooper, sorry, Dr. Copper. He also could be liable as well in this. Yeah. So those two are automatically suspected. Exactly. So that, once again, we have the paranoia rising. And it lets you know the blood test probably would have worked. They burn all the blood. Yeah. Because they don't know anything better to do, but yeah. just burn it. Yeah. Because it's probably the. Yeah. And isn't this where they have, he has the speech? Who has the speech? McCready. Yeah. Where he's out there and he's like, I know I'm human. And I know some of you are too. Because if you weren't, all those things would have attacked me right now. And like we just get the general purpose of the movie stated. It's another great scene by Kurt Russell. A great little speech. I really enjoy this. And it sets everything out. Like you you know, and he's saying who he trusts and who he doesn't. And he singles out who we talked about. Clark, with respect, Gary and, and Dr. Cooper, they should have been suspected. Like at that moment. Because the blood was destroyed and, and that was a pretty telltale sign. I also like how drunk. McCready is through this whole movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, McCready's just really he's been, still, he was getting drinking. shit-faced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nothing else. Hey, the world's going to end. They're probably going to die at the end of the day. You might as well have a few drinks. They found that Fuchs burnt himself to stop spreading the thing. We see that. Yeah. Yeah. Because he had gone out earlier because someone had gone past him. He thought he saw something and he found like a destroyed pair of, of McCready's uh, long johns, right? Yeah. And so when he went out there and saw it, and so they do find him burned. Because they went out to look for him, and, and so they, 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 we never really find out what happened there. No. We don't get a definitive answer. We just, he either, you know, I think he poured kerosene on himself because he thought saw the tentacles coming. I think he just lit, lit himself up with a flare. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or he was trying to light the thing up and accidentally burnt himself or something like that. We don't know. Yeah. We have no idea. And I like that. We don't have, we don't have to know. It's not important. No. We just know something horrible happened. Yeah. That's fine. It's, we don't need an explanation to everything. It, it adds to the, to the ambiance, if you will. But it makes people think that McCready's the thing. Yes. That is the one thing. We've now introduced that. Like Now, we're fairly certain our protagonist can't be the thing. Fairly certain. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I do want to mention that because it's a fun idea that McCready could have been like the thing the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of like that he's also the last, the final girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, McCready breaks into the storeroom and holds up dynamite. And he's trying to uh, get people away from him because he knows that everybody thinks that he's the thing. Yeah, because they, they didn't want to let him in because Nalls came back with the underwear and he's like, it's McCready. My God, it's him. And so everybody immediately is like, all right, he's fucked. We're not letting him in. They immediately turn on him. He's a bunch of Judases. So he has to get his way in because he has the keys. And when they get the drop on him, he's got the dynamite. And everybody knows McCready isn't fucking around. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, you come after me, we're all going to blow up, motherfuckers. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> let's go. Try it. And I do like Childs. Is, he's a brave dude, but he's like, nah, man, McCready's willing to die here. Yeah. Like, he, he gets it real early on. Like, nah, this guy's a killer. I can't. Like, you, you, don't, you don't stare a killer down and say, I dare you. That's not going to work out well for you. Right. So he understands that. And it, it, obviously, everyone's trying to get the drop on McCready. But he still is in charge of the situation. Yeah. The guys, you know, they come in there, he's able to throw off Nalls, and then he throws off, what's his name? Um, Norris? Norris. Norris. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the guy that stops breathing. Yeah, he throws Norris off and he stops breathing, and this gets everybody to have to rush to the infirmary. They untie Dr. Copper. Yeah. So he can try to attend to do him. Chest contra- so yeah. he can do chest compressions. And he starts CPR and it's, and un- it's unsuccessful. And all the guys are still trying to zero in McCready. He's holding them back with the flamethrower and the dynamite. You know, the tension's increasing. Is he going to survive? He hits him with the defibrillator once. You see a little spark come down. It's ineffective. And then he goes to do it a second time. And it's just a pure fucking horror show. Yeah. It's just a giant teeth. Yeah. Mouth with teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. It chops his arms off right then and there. He dies. We, we don't see him again. And it's one of the things I like about this scene is the second it turns, our focus, the, the thing is the main character. Yeah. The, I mean, we see everything from his perspective at this moment. It's perspective. You know, because we just see McCready kind of fumbling around. Everybody else scared shit, which is fair, <laughs> by yeah. the way. It's a truly shocking sight. Like I said, he goes down. The thing, the head of uh, Nora starts to fall off and, and form into mm-hmm. a different creature. He splits apart and, and it goes up to the ceiling with a, a demonic version of his head just sort of on a tentacle, just above everybody, sort of teasing them. Yeah. Taunting them, if you will. Screaming. Yeah, making yeah. Making that horrible noise. Yeah, it's, it's slashing the tentacles and stuff at them until McCready's able to get in there and just light him up with the flamethrower. Yeah. And, he, you know, he burns him to a crisp and the guy's coming to put it out. He's like, no, 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 wait, let it burn because mccready knows already and he does they let it burn for like five or six extra seconds before they start putting it out yeah makes you think man they're lucky that they had all those fire extinguishers (laughs) yeah right yeah because yeah fire kind of spreads i I kept thinking that all the time so he's dealt with but the head is still on the ground yes and there's a great little sequence where like the tongue is slashing around it tries to grab onto something to slowly bringing itself away it's a really well done effect. Looks good today. We, you know, we actually got a chance to watch it with uh, my mother in law, your mom. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was her first time to see it, or if not, she hadn't seen it in a very long time. Yeah. And, and she was kind of impressed by the effect. I, it, it still holds up pretty well today, honestly. Norris's head looks really good. Yeah. Then the, the legs pop out of it, it goes away. <laughs> and then I love their reaction. You gotta be fucking kidding me. 
Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's such a it's such a moment of levity in this awful, awful moment. The McCready just burns the head and, and lets it burn. But you you sort of understand this scene is very important because McCready, this idea clicks in for him that you have to destroy every part of it, every single part of it, because every part of it's alive. Yeah. Every part of it's its own creature. And this is what spurs on probably like his most brilliant idea, because this leads us directly to the blood test scene. Well, we also get a scene where McCready kills Clark. Clark does try to rush him with the scalpel. Yeah. And he shoots him right between the eyes. Yes. Which... In, in the in the whole with everybody and how they end up in this movie, I guess is a yeah. Which, by the way, at that moment, I was like, "Well, I guess Clark's not courtesy. the thing because that wouldn't have done anything." Mm-hmm. If he was the thing. He just would have immediately turned. Now we know. Yeah, looking back on it, that's what you think. But then you wouldn't realize it. And by the way, that's the only time you see the, the aftermath. Doctor Cooper's just dead. You don't get a shot of him on the ground convulsing or anything like. He's just dead. Yeah. So severe then, blood loss. Yeah, they they cover him with um with the sheet, and that's the last time we we see those characters. And so at this point, we do begin uh, the blood test. He begins to explain how the whole thing is is going to work. We're gonna draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're gonna find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal, the built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. The blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. Crawl away from a hot needle, say. And Clark was human, huh? She makes you a murderer, don't it? So he did the first couple tests already. Mm -hmm. And then Clark wasn't one. You know, Childs is wrong. That wouldn't make him a murderer. You know, Clark rushed him. This is pure nonsense. Doesn't prove a thing. I thought you'd feel that way, Gary. You were the only one that could have got to that blood. We'll do you last. I love that too because the character you least the character you're thinking about the least ends yes. up being the thing. Yeah. You you don't it's think so the stoner surprising. is gonna end up being him. And he's completely blank and beginning to convulse and now shifting over to it. And I love Childs and Gary are freaking the fuck out. No, they're tied to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gary has no composure at all. He's just screaming like a woman. <laughs> Going crazy. <laughs> Uh, the flamethrower will not work. McCready's ineffective here, and, and Windows is just staring. Yeah. And he's got he's a flamethrower, too. Yeah. And Windows is not. Poor Windows. I know. Poor Windows. Windows gets his head eaten by the thing and spit out, sadly. So... <laughs> Uh, this leads to the end of Windows. And Poor he's, Windows. Yeah, he's thrown there on the ground, and he's beginning to become infected by it. Even though this kind of infection is a little bit unexplained, but, I mean, it makes sense if you have it enter your bloodstream. It's the cells. Yeah, the second it does, you're going to start becoming it. So you don't have to necessarily be absorbed, but I would assume that way is much, much slower. Yeah. Yeah, because you get an instant copy in a couple of minutes, as opposed to probably having to wait, like, I don't know, a few hours for all your cells to slowly turn into that. Yeah. Then McCready begins his fight with it. He does finally get the flamethrower working. He bl- he hits it with the flamethrower. It runs right through the wall. Mm-hmm. Goes right outside uh, where McCready hits it again, and it falls down, and it burns. And then he takes a stick of dynamite and throws it right at it, right? Yeah. And I love this scene. because If you watch it, <laughs> Kurt Russell throws the dynamite, and it's actually him. He fought to do this scene. 
and you can see the second that dynamite explodes, he just flies against the wall of the set. Like, ugh! <laughs> like, he did not expect the dynamite to have that much force and impact. It knocked the living shit out of him. That was maybe my favorite story from the commentary track. He's like, oh, it looks so cool, I'll be so tough, and then he just hit it. It was like, it knocked the, knocked the wind out of me, I had a concussion. Like, it really messed him up. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You could really catch it. You could see it. It really, it hit him hard against that, against that wall. Well, they decide to uh, finish the tests. And After this, no one doubts else McCready. passes. Yeah. No one doubts McCready at this point. And I, I give my favorite lines. You could kindly untie me so I'd spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is fair. It's been a stressful day for those guys. Yeah. And you know, the cool part is they're like all working as a team at this point. Yeah. And, and I like they, they're all in the same place. And it doesn't matter. Because they head out to go find uh, Blair. Blair, thank you. They get to go find Blair, and they discover the door is open, and Blair's been busy. He's missing. Yeah, he's not there, and under the floorboards, he's been building something. Yeah, he's been building a ship. Yeah, it looks like so. Yeah, in this movie and in the prequel, the thing's goal is to get the hell out of there. <laughs> Maybe he just wanted to go home. Who knows? Yeah, that's that's when I thought that the the creature just wanted to escape and get out of there. Yeah. Like, yeah. he didn't want anything else to do with the humans. Yeah. And that's an interesting idea that maybe that's really what it wanted. It wanted those guys to go away, and Blair just, as a human, assumed the worst. Well, good old Blair, he turns off the generators. Yes, yeah, so it ensures that they will die in a few Eventually, hours. Yeah, they will die. Yeah, because it's going to be a negative 100 in Antarctica. Or whatever temperature it's going to be. Either way, they can't survive it. So at this point, they have to come up with a new plan. And as McCready says, let's warm things up a bit. Yeah. And so that's what the idea is. They go right through everything and they start blowing everything up. And this is where McCready has that speech where we're just not getting out here live. Yeah. We're, we're, we're done. But neither's that thing. Yeah. So they all start to work on this, but Childs does take off into the snow for some reason. Yes. And we, we do not see him for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So we have the rest of our characters, which is Gary and Nalls. I think that's who's left, right? That's it. Yeah, Gary and Nalls, they go down there and they torch everything, Molotov cocktails, the rest of the Jim Bean is gone. Then they go underneath and they say, time to destroy the generator room. Uh, Gary goes down there first and has his face invaded by, yeah. <laughs> by uh, Blair's hand. Uh, one of the weirder deaths in the movie, but um, it does finish him off and he is infected. When he, he doesn't actually get to become a thing. He's just part of the final creature at the end. Because they're laying down the charges and all the dynamite and everything like that. Nalls wanders off to hear a noise, and we never see Nalls again. Mm -mm. McCready asks him a question and realizes he's gone. And that's when the floorboards <laughs> rise up and come at him. Yeah. McCready jumps out of the way in time to see our final creature pop up. Yeah. Yeah, and it's quite a sight. We have uh, basically the side of Blair's head and like a T-Rex on the other side. Dog. Yeah, we got wild stuff. I mean, it, it really is an impressive sight. Looks very, very cool. Dean Cundy lit it well. It's back. It's just so good. Yeah, it's lit by fire. Yeah, yeah. It really does look impressive. And, and McCready continues his don't give a fuck attitude. It took the uh, detonator with it, but he picks up his lit piece of dynamite, jumps out of the way. And once he say, fuck you, <laughs> and then throws the dynamite right at it. Uh, or for like, fuck you too. And then tosses the dynamite at it, runs out of there and it all explodes the whole entire base. McCready's able to make it out just before it does burns everything and most likely destroys every bit of the thing since you know, they cooked it. Yep. And then that leads to the end, which is 
McCready and Childs are the only one left. Childs returns. He yeah. says he thought he saw Blair out there, but why did he head out there anyway? So, but, and that's the coolest part about the sending. They sit down, they have a little chat, and we'll never know. Yeah. It's just ambiguous. McCready hands him a, the bottle of J&B, mm-hmm. and uh, he takes a sip. But yeah. he doesn't hand it back. He does not, no. So, the thing about this is, you know, there's always been the fan theories. Mm-hmm. And one of the fan theories is that you can't see Child's breath. And I, I guarantee you in an HD version, you can see Child's breath. Yeah. <laughs> so he is yeah. breathing. Yeah, you can see it. it. It's not as apparent as McCready's because in that angle, he's, he's a little bit more backlit. Mm-hmm. So it, it's right against the light. And, and the, way Mc, the way Child's is framed, you, you just can't see. But it's there. It very clearly is there. You see him breathing. And the other theory is it's kerosene inside the bottle of Jim Bean. Yeah, and that's how McCready knows it's yeah. Child's. Yeah. yeah, that's what people believe. It's like he got the bottle back and immediately threw it at Child's to light him up. At least that's what people believe. Uh, the um, There is technically a sequel, the Thing game on the PS2, which is canon. Carpenter confirmed that. And McCready was not the Thing, did survive. So take that for what you will. But I prefer not to really look at that. But it did happen. I just want to acknowledge it. Yeah. But as it sits, this is an incredibly ambiguous ending. And I love every frame of this movie, this paranoid masterpiece. And that's what it is, a a true masterpiece. I mean, I can't think of a movie that does so many strange things that this movie does to be gross like it is, to have a movie with just guys, to have eight people stuffed into a frame. A a lot of the time you see seven or five people stuffed into a frame Mm -hmm. and it really works. You know, you, you understand the tight, tight corridors, how difficult it is to avoid something when you're stuck in with people that tightly. It's a master class in tension, and yeah. uh, it's, it's a really one of my favorite horror movies. Yeah, yeah. I, I know we, we make jokes all the time about the greatest movie ever made, but this, this is really one of those situations. And I, I mean, I can't stress that enough, that if, if you haven't seen John Carpenter's The Thing, you need to stop what you're doing right now and go out and watch this movie. Yeah, you'd be crazy not to. If you like thrillers, uh, if you have a weak stomach, you, you might have a few issues with the effects. They might be cheesy to you. Who knows? But I really recommend this movie just because you need to say you've seen it. If you're going to say you're a cinephile or a movie fan and you're going to watch the greatest movies of all time, you do yourself a great disservice if you don't see John Carpenter's The Thing at least once. All right, I have some great facts. This is John Carpenter's personal favorite movie of his. Yeah, yeah, I did I didn't know that. I did know that. This is the movie he is the the most proud of. David Clennon's line, "You've got to be fucking kidding," is Kurt Russell's favorite and never fails to make him crack up. Yeah, he does, he cracks up in the commentary track. Yeah. Cracks up in the commentary track. Rob Botton or Botton was only 22 when he did the special effects. Yeah, kind of amazing that he kind of rewrote the book on these effects and everything like that. So. Mhm. The poster artist, Drew Struzan, Strausen, created the poster for the movie overnight without having even seen any publicly publicity it's photos. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. And so weird. Yeah, yeah. He, he understood the concept of the movie, and you get it in one image. Yeah. Beautiful. Toby Hooper was originally chosen as director. Universal didn't like the ideas he had for the movie, so they dumped him. Makes sense. Hooper had a lot of troubles with studios and stuff like that. He liked doing weirder things, so a lot of times that happened, you know? Yeah. Carpenter, the, the, the guys, the other part of directing is having to pitch and having to convince people you know what you're doing. And, like, Hooper struggled with that, which was a shame because he could be a very talented director. And Carpenter was a little bit better at that. Yeah. Able to convince people that he knew what he was doing. But Carpenter was, was a better director, in my opinion. When Carpenter was brought on board, he brought with him Bill Lancaster, who was a novice screenwriter, having only written two movies, The Bad News Bears 
and bad news bears go to Japan. One of Lancaster's best ideas was McCready's blood test sequence. Carpenter loved it. Clearly, yeah, that was a really clever idea. Really, really clever idea mm-hmm. with the with the with the bad guy that they built. Mm-hmm. And it's a great scene. It's beautiful, and you've seen it copied quite a bit. the The facility knocks off that scene really hard in, in that movie with the the, the crack mm-hmm. cocaine test. That's very similar. <laughs> Universal gave Carpenter ten million dollar budget with just two hundred thousand of that allotted for creature effects. However, storyboarding grew so extensive that they were forced to increase to $15 million. Universal also agreed that the makeup department was quite large, so they increased the bud- effects budget to $750,000. Well, Universal eventually, Universal eventually spent $1.5 million on special effects. It shows. I mean, mm-hmm. It's an effects movie and it looks great. Yeah, it's a shame that the prequel didn't do that. Yeah, didn't. yeah. They, 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 well, they wanted to go the same way, but they weren't given the opportunity, sadly. Sadly. The thing opens with a destroyed and burnout Norwegian base. To save money, Carpenter and his team decided to film the sequence after destroying the main American base. They blew up the base for the film's climactic sequence. Once it was all blown and destroyed, they simply filmed inside it, burnt out skeletal ra- remains, and used that for the opening sequence. Nice. Mm-hmm. It was a good idea. Great way to save some cash. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what you had to do. $15 million sounds like a lot, but it, you know, it, it's not really. Multiple endings were filmed and edited. Many people, including the film's editor and Universal executives, hated the movie's ambiguous and nihilistic ending. In one filmed but unused ending, McCready is rescued and given a positive blood test, proving he was a human. In another slightly reworked ending, Childs was omitted completely. They went with the ambiguous ending, which did not sit well with test audiences or the general public. I think this one would be so weird if it had a happy ending on it. Mm-hmm. Like if yeah. got away. I think Carpenter probably ultimately thought the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it doesn't really work that way. It's a, it's a nihilistic film. That's what these guys were. They were sacrificing everything to save everyone else. And that's that's a really heroic thing. These aren't heroic men. That's not who yeah. they are. But they, they knew what it meant. Mm-hmm. And it was, sometimes you got to step up. <laughs> sometimes it goes down that way. Part of what makes the thing so great was the different ways that the creature presents itself. This was largely the decision of makeup designer Rob Botton, as Carpenter originally wanted one single unchanged monster. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad they went that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad they went that way. <laughs> Rob Botton was hospitalized for stress. Botton was dedicated to his craft. He often did difficult tasks himself, literally lived on set, and worked for one straight year without taking any days off. He was eventually hospitalized for double pneumonia, a bleeding ulcer, and exhaustion. Yeah, the man worked himself to the bone. Clearly, yeah. But it shows. Yeah, yeah, it's great work. It's classic. But he had help. He eventually hired Stan Winston which went uncredited for his work in this movie. He primarily worked on the dog effects, Stan Winston. Winston had great respect for Botton, so he refused to take official credit for his work. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all the great facts that I have for this. Brother out. I like that. Movie. So let's talk about the reception of the thing. Okay. Um, This movie cost about $15 million, like you said, and it made $19.5 million uh, at the box office, which is a horrible failure. This movie opened up a couple weeks after E.T., uh, which was lighting the box office on fire. And, you know, you could argue America wasn't necessarily in the mood for evil aliens and everything like that after that sort of phenomena. So sometimes 
Sometimes you just get a little bad luck, but critics were not kind to the movie, to say the least. And I think that is one of the things that really intrigues me about the movie is that its reputation completely changed over time. And that doesn't always happen to movies. This movie went from being critically reviled at the time to a genre classic to, like I said, one of the greatest movies ever made. And, you know, Carpenter was vindicated, but that took 10, 15 years to really happen. It took VHS re-airings on cable for people to reevaluate. Word of mouth, literally. Yeah, old. that's the way it happened back in the day. People just talked to each other like, oh, I mean, see this movie, the thing, it's awesome. And that's what it was. People just saw it on cable and went, dude, this movie's good. And, you know, I should, I should have seen this earlier. And that's just how it was. And it stayed on cable forever for that reason. People loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that's how it, go, how it went back in the day. It's very different now. You know, movies that flop don't get their chance really anywhere. They go to streaming and, and maybe they get discovered again. Maybe they catch a little steam. Maybe they don't. But this was a little bit more of a popular thing to happen then. Another movie where that happened was like Austin Powers. Mm-hmm. A very mild, moderate success at the box office. It goes to video and it became like the number one movie in America. Yeah. Like I remember I saw Austin Powers in the theater, thought it was a cool little flick. And then like four months later, everyone in school is like, do I make you horny, baby? Like, what? Why? Why is everybody talking about Austin Powers? I was so confused. And then to find out like it just became like number one on the rental charts for like, I think months. Even my parents love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And they had, they commissioned a sequel immediately. I think it's the only movie to make more on the opening weekend, the sequel than the original film made in its entire run. We went camping one time as a family. Yeah. And we drove through a town that had a movie theater with it playing. And we literally went away from our campsite to go see a movie. Wow. Go see Austin Powers sequel. They were very, very popular. It was a big movie. Yeah. Came out ninety nine. Came out 1999, same year as uh, episode one did, because their, their original teaser trailer was a parody of the episode one trailer, which worked out really well since episode one didn't turn out so well, even though time turned. You know what? That's another one to mention as well. Time turned on those movies. Mm-hmm. Prequels. Now, we disagree. Over time, people have begun to recognize the fun and the actually i don't know i think the prequels suck yeah the prequels suck the prequels really suck and, and people love them and and it's nostalgia and they're fools <laughs> yeah yeah it's nostalgia and, and they're fools. there's some nice moments here and there but they're ultimately silly pointless little movies but either way so this is what john carpenter had to say about his critical reception i take every failure hard the one i took the hardest was the thing my career would have been different if that had been a big hit the movie was hated even by science fiction fans. They thought that I had betrayed some kind of trust, and the piling on was insane. Even the original movie's director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. And he did. He had horrible things to say about John Carpenter's version of the film. Jeez. He really, really did. Obviously, we talk about Roger Ebert a lot, but take a look at some other critics at the time. Vincent Canopy for the New York Times called the film a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that it is fun as neither one thing or the other. Sometimes it looks as if it was aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s. Time Magazine's uh, Richard uh, Schneichel wrote, Designer Rob Botton's work is novel and unforgettable, but since it exists in a near vacuum emotionally, it becomes too domineering dramatically and something of an exercise in abstract art. Gary Arnold called the film A Wretched Excess. Jay Scott, in his review, said, A hell of an antidote to E.T., so, you know, r- reviews, even positive ones, weren't necessarily great. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that this, like I said, it really affected Carpenter. You know, things could have gone a lot differently if it was. And, you know, I just wanted to drive home the point that, like, you know, critics can get it wrong. 
Yeah. They, cer- they certainly can. Any movie over time can have its opinion reevaluated or changed. And I'm glad this, this movie had the opportunity. A lot of movies don't get that chance. Yeah, it lives on and it will live on because yeah. it holds up. Yeah, there'll, there'll probably be another remake at some point. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and we'll cover that too. Hell yeah, we will. So do you, what do you got for us? You got some reviews? I do. All right. So The Thing, 1982, got a 4.7 user review, 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, and an 8.2 IMDb. And then I have, I had a hard time, I really had a hard time finding a one-star review to kind of, as the antithesis of this movie. Yeah, that sort of lets you know how. But when I first opened the page, it was like 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. <laughs> it's the first time that's happened. So I found a three-star review, and it's a really good one. There is a good reason why the 1951 The Thing is a classic. Howard Hawks' influence is obvious, and it packs the excitement, bravado, and camaraderie that he brought to his westerns. It introduces us to a variety of characters that are amiable and sympathetic, and balances that with a conflict that erupts between the scientists and military in dealing with the alien threat that confronts them. Looking for anything of similar depth or entertainment value in Gone Carpenter's Woe Be Gone remake is pointless because it simply does not exist. This film adheres a bit more closely to the source novella by John W. Gamble's Jr. Carpenter version adopts an invasion of the body snatcher's mentality wherein a creature infects others and takes on their appearances to move out about at will. It is an interesting concept, but it becomes apparent that the sole interest Carpenter has in crafting progressively gorier and grotesque effects to gross out the viewer. The film keeps the same setting in Antarctica and opens with some Norwegians attempting to kill a sled dog. The chase interacts, intersects with a group of Americans at a neighboring research facility who think the Norwegians are crazy. When the dog is sheltered in the American facility, it is revealed to be the thing of the title. The remainder of the film is basically a guessing game as to who is really human and who is who has become the simulation of the thing. The storyline sounds in, infinitely more exciting than it actually plays out. Carpenter has little to no interest in the characters populating his thriller. There are no women at the base and the men are little to no discernible personalities. There is not a role that is not filled by a capable actor, but no one manages to make much of an impression. Even lead Kurt Russell doing another one of his lamentable John Wayne imitations just blends into the bland background of bottled testosterone. Unlike Invasion of the Body Snatcher, where it seemed to a distinct tragedy that the central characters were being turned into cold, unfeeling beings, the characters in this film are already relatively emotionless and so feel no tragedy over their assimilation. It is easy to understand why Carpenter has no interest in plot, character development, or even building genuine suspense. His attention is too focused on the next special effects makeup freak show, Extravaganza. All the imagination seems to have been funneled into a next gore scene. The initial scenes where the thing departs its guise of the sled dog and launches an attack on the other dogs in the kennel is revolting on more levels than one can care to count. The dog's head spits open and a tentacled creature goes on a bloody rampage, assimilating animals all around into a giant writhing wall of quivering flesh and fur that splits open in various spots to reveal writhing bloody innards. Animal lovers be forewarned. Full disclosure when I initially attempted to watch the film, and being a fan of the 1951 original, I actually walked out of the theater shortly after this sequence. Several years later, I decided to give the film another chance and made it all the way through to the end. Later sequences are just as repellent. 
Body parts fly to and fro, chests are crushed, arms are bitten off, limbs are taken on lives of their own and try to skitter away. Again, lots of imagination, but it would have been far more impressive if Carpenter had channeled this initiative into more substantial areas of this epic. At the time, the depiction was quite a bit surprising coming from Carpenter, whose thrillers had heretofore largely eschewed graphic violence. Here he makes up for it a hundredfold. Gradually, the man are whittled away. Unfortunately, no one cares. There's no sense of urgency or concern for any of these people. They are unknowable ciphers and easily interchangeable. We truly cannot tell who the thing has infected less because of its diabolical nature than because of the men are all written and played as colorless cookie-cutter tough guys from the average grade C action film. Carpenter seems to have no idea how people would genuinely act in such a tense situation, and there is no camaraderie amongst the men at all. None of them seem to be friends or work well together. They are all a gaggle of lone wolf marble men, braving the great unknown. Despite being isolated together and living in close quarters for months, none of them seem to know even the most minor of things about each other. The vague, ambiguous ending with two of the characters resting amongst the carnage, sharing a drink and trying to ascertain if the other one is human or the thing is exceptionally vacuous. For one thing, knowing that the thing propagates itself through bloody fluids, why in the world would the two men chance sharing a drink from the same bottle? Then again, do we really care about either of these guys? The answer would be a resounding no. Interestingly, the film was developed at cult falling, and fanatics talk about it like it's some sort of classic. Unfortunately, nothing could have been further from the truth. At the time of the release, the film was a major box office disappointment, and the majority of the critical reviews were scathing. In fact, the only people who really seem to consider this some lost classic are gore hounds who think bloodletting should trump storytelling. Oof. He was not a fan. Dude. That was well written to say that he really didn't like this movie. He argued his points, and I think fairly well. I don't agree, but I mean, he argued his points pretty well, and he took the time to take a shit on everybody that does like the movie that reevaluated it. Yeah, why not? The same way that we do with like the prequels, like everybody that reevaluated, then goes, "You're a stupid fucking idiot." (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay, you know. uh, he at least laid his point out pretty well. A lot of these reviews, sometimes I'm just like, we have to list a little bit more about, like, I just didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I think he did a nice job listing out what his complaints were and what didn't work for him. Sadly, it didn't, but it didn't work for him. Yeah. yeah. He didn't like it when he saw it back then, and he didn't like it now. No. With that being said, uh, Meredith, uh, what are your socials? Up your butt. <laughs> Oh, yes, of course. One Mr. Roger Ebert was indeed alive in 1982. And this week, I don't just have him, but I also have Gene Siskel. I got him on audio. As you might guess, the critical consensus on the movie was pretty low. And uh, do you think Ebert was a fan? No. No. Uh, Roger Ebert was not a fan of John John Carpenter's The Thing. I think he gave it two, two and a half stars. Wow. Two stars, maybe? By the way, in the review clip, he does not give it a thumbs down. They had not invented that yet. Well, I don't know what it is, but it's big and it's hungry. And John Carpenter's new thriller, The Thing. That's one of four new movies we'll be reviewing this week on Sneak Previews. Across the aisle from me, Gene Siskel, film critic of the Chicago Tribune. And this is Roger Ebert, film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times. Our next film, The Thing, has already caused a lot of talk before it has opened. About two weeks ago, something very unusual happened to me. I began getting postcards at my newspaper office from readers telling me that 
John Carpenter's new movie, I guess they'd seen it in a preview, was one of the most disgusting films ever made. Well, those postcard writers certainly were right about one thing. <laughs> the movie The Thing does contain a lot of repellent special effects, telling the story of a creature that is discovered in the Antarctic by a team of American scientists. Here, the scientists expect the damage that the mysterious thing did at another scientific installation. The Thing is based on the same book that was used in a 1952 movie, also called The Thing, and there is a similarity between the two films, with both having the subtext of a Cold War mentality, suspicion of strangers. This part of the thing is not disgusting at all, I think. Actually, it's quite intriguing, especially in this scene where the scientists begin to doubt each other, wondering who among them has been infected by the thing, which turns you into a monster that looks exactly like yourself. I know I'm human. If you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're gonna find out who's who. All right, Doc, Gary, and Clark, move over there away from the others. Norris, you and Childs, shoot him up with morphine. Tie him down in the rec room and watch him. Fuchs, you start working on a new tab. I need Doc's help. Yeah, you don't want to drug me. Mac, I'm not a prisoner! Later, there's a terrific blood test where they try and check out who is human, who is not. I wish this movie were less ugly than it is, because in terms of storytelling and suspense, and that subtext of suspicion of one's fellow man, this is actually a very well-made movie. But at regular intervals, no doubt about it, it does gross one out. So, a mixed review for the thing for me. I'm going to recommend it, but serve notice that a lot of people who see it will be made sick by it. I think that's probably an understatement. I would call this the barf bag movie of July. I have Oof. some problems with it. One of them is, I think, the characters. They're not made into three-dimensional people. Their function is to walk down the corridor and be jumped on. The other thing is plausibility. Once they figure out that this thing can turn into one of them, they ought to institute a watertight buddy system, but instead they have all kinds of loopholes. People walk out into the snow, come back with a grin on their face, so that the story is totally implausible, and the movie just basically is an excuse for this very gruesome and repellent creature to gross us out. It is okay. the most nauseating thing I've ever seen on a movie screen, I think. That's quite a statement. I yes, think, I, I think, think I'll stand behind yeah, it. Yeah, I think that the uh, movie for me, though, isn't about those characters mm -hmm. as individual people. I think that's why they can be interchangeable. I think that it's about how a society, this little group here, once mm -hmm. the poison, they think something's going wrong, you're, you're not in the group, you're out. Move, just uh -huh. that line, move away to one side, is a very mm -hmm. chilling thing. And I think if you read the movie in that way, then the implausibilities well, at, your, at your level mean very little. And so you sit there wishing, and I do wish, that it were a lot cleaner. Well, I think, Gene, though, that you, I've got uh, news for you, and that is that 99% of the people who go to see this movie are go there to see the monsters, and very few of them are going to read it as your kind of uh, allegory of McCarthyism. That we will see. And Ebert was wrong. On the thing, mm -hmm. Roger, as you can remember, was appalled by the <laughs> monsters in the film. He calls it a geek show. I didn't enjoy looking at the monsters either. 
but I did find it to be an interesting element in the movie, the element of suspicion of something rotten in one's fellow man. So a reluctant, but yes, vote for the mind. Well, that's all for this week. So, yeah, Roger Ebert did not like it. Gene Siskel kind of did, and Gene Siskel was kind of proven right. He just was never much for gore. Yeah. So it makes sense that he just kind of liked it. But he did like what Carpenter was going for. Yeah, at least somebody did back right. then. Yeah, somebody did. Yeah. Yeah, I love the thing. It's I do, fair, too. Fairly evident here. So we, we did what we've done before. We spent a little over an hour here, about an hour, oof, like an hour and 10 minutes here, talking about the thing. And so next week, uh, we're going to cover the original film, The Thing from Another World from 1951. Mm-hmm. And then we will cover The Thing 2011, which is very confusing for us. Well, we're going to call it the prequel. Yeah, it's the prequel. And uh, that was Mar- with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And we will cover both of those films and compare them to uh, the one we just talked about. But like I said, we wanted to spend a good amount of time talking about The Thing and what we love about it. Yeah. And uh, we hope you enjoyed it as well. And uh, if you would like to let us know that you did enjoy it or that you agree with Roger Ebert, that this is a real barf bag movie, you can let us know that via our email address, grittyrebootcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you're not in 1997 and you would like to try something a little bit more modern, you can attempt to get a hold of us via Instagram and social media, and that's just Gritty Reboot. And oh, yeah. I tend to reply to that fairly quickly. So, Oh, yeah. So, yeah, with that being said, uh, guys, we will see you next week for the second part of The Thing. We'll see you next week. See you guys. Later. <laughs>